We are uh, going to continue, as I said, that I can't cover the Sabbath thing in one week. So um, I'm going to continue on this a little bit before we get back to our Hebrews message. Yeah, yeah, it was. If um, you want to listen to that, I did post it on Patreon. And I can put it on our SoundCloud. And that one basically is going to talk about the role of a woman. And uh, that's why we talked about it. That's what they said last night. (laughs) But um, also the connection to abortion and breast cancer. And uh, just how there is a huge connection between those two. Undeniably statistical, um, documented connection between the two. That if you have abortions, the, the chances of breast cancer are huge. So, like I said, it is on Patreon if uh, you have that, or else uh, I'll put that one on SoundCloud as well. So, it's really good. But, yeah. Yeah. So, at least the, the Patreon one will have the, the graphs and the statistics and all that to kind of back it up. The SoundCloud is just going to be uh, audio right now, but anyway. Um, tonight we, uh, as I said, are going to continue on this Sabbath, and I don't know how far it's, let's see, 6.30, I'm going to try and shorten these up a little bit than the last two weeks. The last two weeks I've tried to cover so much, but, um, we need to, as I said last week, cover some church history, because church history helps us understand why the church is the way it is today, and I think that that helps you understand the holidays and all these other things. So um, we're going to kind of pick up with some of that, and you're just going to see some of the inconsistencies as far as what the early church fathers were saying when they're quoting Scripture and what the Scripture actually says. The very, the very verses they're quoting are taken so out of context. All you have to do is just go and look at that verse. That's it. You don't even have to be a scholar or anything like that. So uh, to begin with, we're going to look here at Ignatius of Antioch. Uh, you probably heard of uh, Ignatius um, if you've done much or very little even of uh, Bible commentary or Bible study. Uh, he is somebody that is quoted oftentimes. He was around from 35 to 105 AD. And earlier we saw some other second century records like Barnabas. We talked about him last week in the infant stage of the church, and we're not done with that infancy stage yet, so that's why we're here. Um, there are two Ignatiuses that can be confused to. There's Ignatius of Antioch, and there is Ignatius of Poseida, and this is Antioch, just to clarify that in case you guys are church history scholars here. But anyway, Antioch... Um, was where there were mighty things happening. And there were people coming into the faith. Uh, they were first called Christians in Antioch, the Bible says, in the book of Acts. And so there were a lot of good things going on in this place. So that just gives you a little background of where this guy is, is living, where he is preaching. He is in a pretty solid, solid uh, city, you might say. This is where he's from. So... <clears throat> There's a little controversy over what I'm going to read here with this because 
some suggest that his letters are forgeries and that they actually come from as late as the third century. I don't know. Maybe they are, maybe they're not. Uh, nonetheless, what we're going to see is regardless of the date of this or if it's actually his letter, we see that it was held in high regard and high esteem by the early church. So uh, let me just read to you what it says here. The epistles attributed to Ignatius. This is, by the way, something called the ancient church by William Cool Killen uh, talking about this. He says, the epistles attributed to Ignatius have attracted greater notice and have created more discussion than any other uninspired writings of the same extent in existence. The productions ascribed to this author and now reputed genuine by the most learned of their recent editors might all be printed on one-fourth of a page of an ordinary newspaper. And yet the fatigue of travel inning thousands of miles has been encountered for the special purpose of searching after correct copies of these highly prized memorials. In other words, scholars have poured over this more than any other book outside of scripture. It is considered to be that important. And so what this is going to at the very minimum do is show you what the church was looking like, what they were thinking at the very you know, onset of the church, right out of the gate. So at the least, that's what you can get out of this. So he continues and he says, large volumes have been written either to establish their authority or to prove that they are forgeries. And if collected together, the books in various languages to which they have given birth would themselves form a considerable library. So suffice it to say that these are extremely influ influential even to this day, regardless of what they are, their origins and so on. So if you go to seminary, I can guarantee you, you will learn about Ignatius. It's just that common. So anyway, in the infancy days of the gospel, he is saying here that the Sabbath was abandoned for Sunday. And you're going to see why this is so quoted in the churches today. This is from the epistles of Ignatius to the Magnesians. It says, if therefore those who brought up in the ancient order of things have come to the possession of a new hope, no longer observing the Sabbath, but living in the observance of the Lord's day, on which also our life has sprung up again by him and by his death. Let us therefore no longer keep the Sabbath after the Jewish manner and rejoice in days of idleness, for he that does not work, let him not eat. In other words, what he's saying is this. We don't need to keep the Sabbath like the Jews do. Instead, we're going to do the Lord's Day, which we now call Sunday. Therefore, he says, we're not to rejoice in idleness, meaning not working on a day. That's a terrible thing to be idle, because if you don't work, you don't eat. Now, when you read early church father stuff, it's hard to understand because they don't quote, like today, if I was going to do that, I would write exactly where this is coming from. I'd put in parentheses, you know, that this comes from the Old Testament somewhere. They don't do that. So you really have to know your Bible to see that they're quoting Scripture. But I'm going to show you in a minute that he is quoting Scripture here, the Old Testament. So 
many scholars today, many seminaries, use this to teach that even the early church was worshiping on Sunday, not Saturday. All right. Now, keep in mind as well, he says the Sabbath after the Jewish manner. In other words, it's a Jewish thing, not a biblical thing. But we have to keep in mind where the Sabbath came from. It wasn't because the Jews started it. It was because God started it way back at creation. <clears throat> but what you're going to see is the common denominator is this. You can't be anything like those Jews. It is an intentional separation of Jew and Gentile. Anti-Semitism. And you're going to see that time and time again. It goes on and it says, Let us therefore no longer keep the Sabbath after the Jewish manner and rejoice in the days of idleness, for he that does not work, let him not eat. I guess I, I said that already, but I'm highlighting it here to show you that he's not referring to rabbinical law. He's not referring to pharisaical law or Judaism, but he's referring to Torah or the law of God. This is a passage that is coming that we will also see in the New Testament in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 10. And um, so basically Paul, Paul is saying this. Let's look at that verse. It says this, For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. Now keep in mind, Paul is quoting the Old Testament. Ignatius here is quoting Paul, so in essence he's quoting the Old Testament. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now, if you look at this, the context isn't that they were keeping the Sabbath. The context is that these people were lazy. They weren't working at all. It isn't that they were Sabbath keepers. And so Ignatius is quoting this, taking it out of context. 1 Timothy 5.8, If anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Basically saying the same kind of thing here. And so we have to distinguish what God's saying about the Sabbath. The Sabbath isn't about not working. It's about keeping it holy for God. And so everything that Ignatius is saying here, quoting it as a sense, we're not going to keep the Sabbath and you should work on the Sabbath because this is what it says, this is what Paul says, this is what the Old Testament says, is out of context. Remember in Ezra, the book of Ezra, God said that we were to rejoice on the Sabbath. Again, let us therefore no longer keep the Sabbath after the Jewish manner and rejoice in days of idleness. For he that does not work, let him not eat. We're supposed to rejoice in the Sabbath, and he says we're not supposed to keep the Sabbath and rejoice in idleness. So not only are you not supposed to not work, you're not even supposed to rejoice in the not working. Okay? Yet that's the opposite of what Ezra said. Exodus 5.1, let's go look at some of the Old Testament here. Bottom line is Israel knew 
that if they didn't keep the feasts, if they didn't keep the Sabbath, that there was some kind of judgment by God. Okay? Just like any of the commandments of God. There was judgment. Now I'm thankful that today, under the new covenant, the condemnation of that law has been removed. That I am no longer condemned because I break the Sabbath, or tell a lie, or have a lustful thought, or any of those things. Okay, but it doesn't change the fact that there are blessings in them, as we talked about last week. And so, it says this in Exodus 5.1, Afterward Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. So they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please, let us go three days' journey into the desert and sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. So notice, first of all, they're realizing if we don't do what God asked us to do, that we're going to have pestilence or the sword, judgment of God, fall on us. Okay? So they're recognizing that. Continues in verse 4. Then the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people from their work? Get back to your labor. And Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are many now, and you make them rest from their labor. But he said, you are idle, idle. Therefore you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. In essence, this is the exact same thing that Ignatius was crying out. Okay, that you're supposed to take a day off of your work, and he says, that's idle, that's being lazy, that's what Pharaoh said. Pharaoh is a picture of the devil. And, and I would say most scholars would say that. Yeah, he is an antichrist type. He is a devil or a satanic type. This is what he's trying to do. Say you're lazy when you obey God. You're lazy. You know, I think a lot of pastors sometimes deal with this too in the sense that if they take a day off and don't do anything but study and they're in the Word, they're not out working with their hands or whatever, that that's lazy. When in fact, that's what they're supposed to do. As a matter of fact, today you go to Israel, there are Jewish uh, yeshivas that basically, in the synagogue as well, you go there and all they do six days a week is study the Word of God. And you think, well, why don't they go get a real job, right? Well, no, it's, it, that is their job. Remember we talked about the priests. The priests needed to study the Word of God so that they would know the Word of God so that they could give the Word of God. And when Nehemiah comes back, remember that he was rebuking them because the priests were not being supported, so they had to go out into the fields and work, which means the whole community was being robbed because if the priests didn't have time to study, they couldn't teach the people. So in not supporting the priests, they were hurting themselves. So anyway, just a, a parallel here of what Pharaoh was saying that Ignatius is saying. You also see Justin Martyr from 100 to 165 AD. Um, again, extremely uh, intelligent guy. He is considered to be an, an early church father. One of his works is called the Dialogue with Trifo. Now, Trifo would be like today's, what we would consider an Orthodox Jew. Okay, he was by the book, non-Messianic, 
Judaism. True Judaism in the sense of what the church would see it today, not true Ju biblical Judaism. So Trifo uh, didn't write this. Some think that it might be a fictitious um, character that Justin made up. We don't know for sure. Again, it really doesn't matter. I think it's irrelevant, but nonetheless, so that you know, some people think Trifo just never existed, and Justin the Martyr is kind of making up like a, a screw tape letter, you might say. All right? But anyway, uh, Justin the Martyr, no question, but whether Trifo existed, I kind of think he did, but it's just an argument that's out there. He said this, Is there any other matter, my friends, in which we are blamed than this, that we live not after the law, and are not circumcised in the flesh as your forefathers were, and do not observe Sabbaths as you do. So basically what he's saying is we are proud and are lifting up the, the fact that we are not after the law, we do not keep the Sabbath, and that we do not get circumcised. Basically bragging about it. And ultimately, I believe that's a poison that has spread. Um, it could be preached pretty much from any pulpit today in our modern church. They're, we're proud that we don't have to keep the law. We're proud that we don't keep a Saturday Sabbath. And those that do keep a Saturday Sabbath are made fun of. Why? Well, you know, I, I was talking with somebody here recently. Why does it bother them? They were kind of being prodded a little bit because of, of trying to honor the Sabbath and being called legalistic or whatever. Why does it bother people that people want to honor what the scriptures, as you're going to see, says is the Sabbath? There's absolutely no logical reason for it. I, said, I think to me that's one of the reasons that you can say that this is a spiritual matter because... Satan hates it when we do what God says, and that's why. Not to say that these are bad people, but they just don't know any better, and Satan's going to use that ignorance against the church, which is why, again, truth matters, that we need to preach truth because Satan uses ignorance against us. Well, he goes on to explain why we don't need to do any of these things. He says, for we too would observe the fleshly circumcision and the Sabbaths, and in short all the feasts, if we did not know for what reason they were enjoined you, namely, on account of transgression and the hardness of your hearts. In other words, the reason the Sabbath was given for you guys, the reason circumcision and the law was given is because you're sinners. That's why God gave you those things. See any anti-Semitic attitude there? That God imposed these laws on the Jews because they were such terrible people. Is that what Scripture says? Matter of fact, it says the opposite. What advantage is there in being a Jew? Much in every way. Romans chapter 4. They have been entrusted with the very words of God. They, theirs are the patriarchs. From them is traced the human ancestry of Christ. From theirs is the divine covenants, the promises. See, the scriptures are saying the exact opposite of what Justin the martyr is telling you. We don't keep these things because those were given to you because of your, just a, 
you're a heathen. Sounds like Nazi Germany to me. And yet this is what we would call a church father. Okay? Um, let me show you what the scriptures tell us why these things were given. Not because the Jews were evil, but as Deuteronomy 6.20 says, when your son asks you in time to come, saying, what's the meaning of the testimonies, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord our God has commanded you? In other words, why do you keep the law of God? Here's the answer in verse 21. Then you shall say to your son, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and the Lord showed signs and wonders before our eyes, great and severe, against Egypt, Pharaoh, and all his household. Now I'm going to stop here before I continue. What I want you to see is, first of all, this is a very question that Justin the martyr is posing and saying why they don't keep these things. He doesn't give a scriptural answer. He gives an anti-Semitic one. Second of all, I want you to see this. In answering this question, Scripture says, first, because God delivered you. That's important. Because we were slaves. Pharaoh was our master, and God is going to bring us out with his mighty hand from that. Deliverance is the number one first thing mentioned. Then it continues and it says, Then he brought us out from there, then he might bring us in, that he might bring us in, to give us the land of which he swore to our fathers, which is a picture of heaven, the promised land. And the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes. Why? To fear the Lord our God for our good always that we might preserve us, or he might preserve us alive, as it is this day. Then it will be righteousness for us, if we are careful to observe all these commandments before the Lord our God, as he has commanded us. Not because they were filthy sinners, but it was for their good and for their righteousness. That's why. And this is why Jesus came too, isn't it? to become righteousness for us. This is what Romans says, now there is a righteousness apart from the law that has been made known. Jesus Christ. And so it points us, even in the Old Testament, I believe this is pointing us to Jesus. Why did he give you the law? To fear God, to preserve your life, that you'd be blessed, and that it would become righteousness for you. Now, could they keep the law? No, they couldn't fully, could they? Any more than you and I can. So, Yeshua came to fulfill the law in our stead. Not to one and done it, but rather to accomplish what we were unable to do. This is the whole point of Yeshua's life, is to do what we're incapable of. He didn't get rid of the law though, right? He says not one jot, not one tittle is going to disappear as long as heaven and earth remain. So clearly he didn't get rid of it. He said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. But today somehow the church has said, nope, the law is gone. We don't need it. That was given to the Jew. Sound familiar? As soon as we try to obey commandments of God, we're Jews. That was for them. You're Gentiles. It's not for you. 
As I said last week, we're going to talk about that in another session down the road, showing you that there is one gospel, one covenant for both Jew and Gentile. And Ephesians talks about that. Go, if, if this puzzles you, just go read Ephesians, the first two chapters even. And you will see that he says that one of the main reasons Jesus came was to break down the dividing wall of hostility and to make the two one. So to me, this is huge. So when Jesus came to fulfill, this is a pattern we see all over the place. I'm not going to get into all this uh, fully, but in Matthew, I think chapter 2, we, we see when it talks about Jesus, it says that he was brought out of Egypt to fulfill what was written in the scriptures about him. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now we look at this and we say, oh yeah, because as a baby Jesus, we remember that he was taken to Egypt. And so he came back from Egypt. Out of Egypt I called my son. It's talking about Jesus in Matthew 2, very clearly. But go look. There's a footnote or a little, you know, A, B, C, whatever it is in your Bible, by where it says, out of Egypt I called my son. And it's going to take you to Hosea, maybe chapter 11, verse 1, I don't remember, but Hosea. It's going to take you to Hosea, where it says, out of Egypt I called Israel. And you go, wait a minute, did, did the author that in the inspired scriptures misquote Hosea in Matthew? No, 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 no. He did not misquote. He is trying to tell you the exact same thing that this is. Yeshua came to do what Israel failed. You see, God did call Israel out of Egypt. And what does he say to do? You are to drive out all of the ungodly people. If you don't, what's going to happen? You're going to have diseases. The diseases that came on the Egyptians, you're going to have. He says, the, the, the false gods, the demons that they have, you will worship. What does Jesus come to do? Shortly after that, he begins his ministry, and what do we see him doing? What Israel failed to do in driving out the demons and driving out the, the false gods, Yeshua casting out demons everywhere. What the Israelites failed to do and then became a land filled with leprosy and all kinds of diseases, what does he do? He heals the diseases. And there's more. I, I have a whole presentation just on that one thing. The point being is he came to do what we were incapable of doing. He, he was fulfilling Israel's history for them, and he does the same for us. He fulfills the Sabbath. He fulfills all the Ten Commandments and everything for us. But that doesn't mean that we still don't try to do those things. Just because Jesus cast out the demons and healed people, does that mean then, oh, the church is done. Jesus took care of it for us, so now we don't need to worry about any of that. No, we still do. Because there are blessings in it. It is for your righteousness. It is to preserve your life. And anybody who tries to keep the commandments of God, not out of righteousness, but out of the same reason the Israelites did, is going to experience that life, I promise. What was the reason when I said the same reason Israel did? I've talked about this a number of times before, but I'm going to say it again because it's applicable here. They were delivered out of Egypt. God saved them. The Passover lamb was done. It, they were redeemed, and because they were redeemed, 
They were wanting to obey him. When your son asks you, why do you obey? Why do you keep a Saturday Sabbath? Because God delivered me from the yoke of slavery, of sin, to, to Pharaoh, the devil. He has delivered me from that. And because of that, I obey because there is, there is righteousness in Christ Jesus. And I love him. And he gave me these commandments to protect me, to preserve me until life everlasting. The same answer applies for us with the law today. Same thing. So, Justin mentioned circumcision, and the Bible tells us that circumcision was a sign of the covenant. Way back in, in uh, Genesis 15, you know, that we, basically there, and then in chapter 17, it's, they're kind of connected. Um, even circumcision is a good thing as well. Now, He's talking about the physical circumcision. Colossians talks about this in great detail. We don't have time to go into it today. But he says that, even Romans, that we are now circumcised, not with the circumcision done by the hands of men in the flesh, but we are circumcised in the heart. That shows you the difference of the old to the new covenant. The old covenant, you had the legal aspect of the circumcision. You do it, you die. Or you don't do it, you die. Today, just like the law was then, he took it from stone, and as Jeremiah prophesied about the new covenant, he says, I will put a new heart in them. Okay, I will write my laws on their hearts, not on stone. And so now we have a circumcision of the heart, and that's the picture of what it is. So I understand, yes, today, physical circumcision, that's... Circumcision or not circumcision means nothing in the flesh. What matters is the circumcision of the heart. But nonetheless, there's a circumcision that needs to be involved. One that the Holy Spirit does. Um, Psalm 119 says, Your word has given me life. I, I can say that to people. No problems. Yeah, I like that. That sounds really nice and warm and fuzzy. Okay? Your word gives me life. The Bible gives me life. But remember, the law is God's word as well. Oh no, that's legalism. That brings death. That brings a curse. Okay, that's the attitude that we have today, so many of us as Christians, is that the law is bad. No, your word, your Torah, gives life. So... I honestly believe, though I don't think Justin the Martyr was this evil person and ungodly, he was deceived by the culture, by an anti-Semitic attitude, as so many throughout the history have been, and Satan was using that lie to go against the church, to bring disunity. Exactly. And, and again, this is why I say truth matters, because if we don't stand in truth we're going to see that Satan can use that against us. Satan plays in the darkness. Satan plays in the lies. You want to be out in the light. You know, I tell people all the time, if you're struggling with pornography or any other sin, you need to find somebody to confess that to. Because if you're sweeping it under the rug and you're keeping it to yourself, it's in the darkness, and I'm telling you, Satan is going to continue to have a, a, a heyday with you. We need to confess our sins so that it's in the light 
And I'm telling you, Satan screams and hates it when you bring your sins out to light. This is why, I mean, the Catholics have some good ideas there. The idea of confession of sins, it's very biblical. The Bible even tells us to confess our sins to one another. Because God knew bringing these things to the light makes Satan flee. So, important. Anyway, continuing on. Here, Justin is going to be quoting Paul again, but this time in Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. We'll look at that verse in a second, but this is what he's quoting. We too would observe the fleshly circumcision in the Sabbath, and in short, all the feasts, if we did not know for what reason they were enjoined, namely on account of your transgression and the hardness of your hearts. That's what I just read. Now let's go look at it here in the New Testament to see, is it the same context? What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgression. Oh, so scripture does say that. But what kind of transgression? Till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through the angels of the hand of a mediator. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law. So the law was your guard. Kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that seed that was to come, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. And I have there, under its condemnation. To say that you're no longer under the law, that the law is gone, would contradict 50 other New Testament verses. Paul saying, is what then? Do we get rid of the law? Not at all. Is the law bad? Certainly not. So, to interpret this saying he gets rid of the law, you've just, now you've got contradictions all over in Scripture. Okay, so that's not what he's saying. But I think you can see here that the problem is, is Justin the martyr is light years away from where Paul is taking this. Paul is saying the law protects us and it points us to Christ. Justin was saying the law was given because you Jews are terrible people. Completely different. Let's look here, the dialogue of Justin Martyr some more. For if we patiently endure all things contrived against us by wicked men and demons, so that even amid cruelties, unutterable death and torments, we pray for mercy to those who inflict such things upon us and do not wish to give the least retort to anyone, even as the new lawgiver commanded us. Basically saying this, the Sabbath, the feasts, they're forced by wicked men. That's why they're around. And also that Jesus is not the lawgiver of the Old Testament. The Jews are. Okay, that is just not contextually correct, is it? What we see in Scripture. I'm going to do a little bit more here. The sixth day. I want to show you here uh, Patau. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right, but I, I think it's Patu is how it really is. But anyway, um, there was a preparation day before Sabbath, and he says that that was for preparing for the kingdom of God. He goes, the sixth day is called Parasive, that is to say the preparation of 
of the kingdom. Um, which, I don't know, you could make sense. I don't really have a problem with that, that the sixth day, the day before the seventh day rest, is a day to prepare for, you know, heaven, you might say. That's what he's saying the sixth day of creation is. He goes on, though, and it goes downhill. He says, let the Pharisee become a rigorous fast, lest we should appear to observe any Sabbath with the Jews, which Christ himself, the Lord of the Sabbath, says by his prophets, that his soul hateth which Sabbath he in his body abolished. So the sixth day is a great day of preparation for the Sabbath. Therefore, we make the sixth day our Sabbath, not the seventh day, the one the Bible calls the Sabbath. Why? Well, to separate Jews and Gentiles, basically. He's distorting Isaiah chapter 1, saying God hates the Sabbaths. We don't want to appear to observe any Sabbath with the Jews, okay? Anti-Semitism. And he says, the prophet said, his soul hates the Sabbath. The prophet he's talking about is Isaiah. And that Jesus abolished it in his law, or in his body. When he said, I did not come to abolish the law. Here is uh, him continuing on. If anyone should assert that all those who have enjoyed the testimony of righteousness from Abraham himself back to the first man were Christians, in fact, if not in name, he would not go beyond the truth. You know, Abraham to Adam, that's not the problem. The problem is after you get from Abraham into Moses for them. He continues, though, and again it goes downhill here. This is Eusebius speaking. For that which the name indicates, that a Christian man, through the knowledge and the teaching of Christ, is distinguished for temperance and righteousness, for patience in life and, many, and manly virtue, and for a profession of piety toward the one and only God over all, all that was zealously practiced by them, not less than by us. In other words, these righteous men from Adam to Noah, what they did, says we're doing. He goes on and says, they did not care about circumcision of the body, neither do we. They did not care about observing Sabbaths. That came about later. You know, Moses... Nor do we, they do not avoid certain kinds of foods, neither did they regard the other distinctions with Moses first delivered to their posterity to be observed as symbols, nor do Christians of the present day do such things. Now keep in mind, we're in the 300s here, so we're in the 4th century, that, as I said last week, that the, the, the lava that went out from the volcano is starting to solidify now. It's starting to create a foundation here. But... As you can see that these righteous men from Adam to Noah, what, what they did, the church is doing today. We're not getting circumcised. We're not keeping the Sabbaths. And they consider this a merit. I think, though, this is a dumb statement because, first of all, the covenant of circumcision okay, came about after Adam. It wasn't there for a reason. Okay, he, God has to come and make that covenant with Abraham later first. As for the Sabbaths, there's nothing to prove this, because when did the Sabbath begin? At creation. 
As a matter of fact, there's evidence to support they were keeping the Sabbath before the Ten Commandments. There's even, you know, evidence as far as clean and unclean animals. They say, well, that's a Levitical thing. Well, we see when Noah takes animals on the ark, they take five extra clean animals and so on. What's the point of understanding what's clean and unclean if there's not a separation and a difference and a reason for that? So I kind of think it's a dumb argument. It's just that God had already had these things in play. The not eating blood, that was even given before Leviticus. Noah was told not to eat blood, but yet we think that's a Levitical thing. Yeah, it's just when it was written down in the Ten Commandments in a way because why were the Ten Commandments given? Well, to guide them, to help them for their righteousness, all of these things. But I think it's because they needed it written down as well so that they would be kept safe because they were forgetting God. They had been corrupt. Corrupted by culture, time, all those kinds of things. And so... Ultimately, it was because of their relationship with God that the Torah and the law were given because the Torah or the law is a reflection of God. It is, in essence, who God is, and therefore, in knowing the law, you know God that much more. You get an aspect of his qualities, his character, his nature, by seeing who he is in those laws. And if and when we ever make it to get to Galatians, as we go through Galatians, you're going to see that, that so many of the laws that we think are just these legalistic, pointless things, there's, there's a, a, a new covenant aspect to all of them. That's beautiful. I think you want to talk about being lazy and idle. It's the New Testament church that's become lazy and idle. I've used this example a lot. People ask me, you know, how come you choose one thing or the other? I, I don't know. I'm learning. When we look at, I call it like the, the covenant of Melchizedek. Jesus came as the priesthood of Melchizedek. I look at scripture being this way. New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament. That when Jesus came, he brought things back to what? The priesthood of Melchizedek. A priesthood is a set of rules. When Abraham met Melchizedek, we see that there was certain rules that were there. The Ten Commandments, Moses, the Levitical law, none of that was there yet. But even under the priesthood of Melchizedek, there were still food laws, you know, the clean and unclean. There was still the Sabbath, as we were talking about here. There were still commandments. As a matter of fact, Abraham, it said he was considered righteous. Why? Because he kept the commands of God. Now, I'm not saying... He earned his, but it says in uh, Galatians that it was because of his, and Romans, that it was because of faith that he carried out these acts of obedience. And that faith and works went hand to hand. So if Abraham was blessed because he kept God's commands, even before Moses, how did he know what commands they were? if there were no commands and it was just a free-for-all before the law. But Scripture says he, and he, he was blessed because he kept God's commands. Well, it's the same for us today. I'm not saved because I keep the commands. I'm blessed 
because I keep God's commandments the best I can. Fail all the time. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ my Lord. Which I don't think it's a small thing that when you look at Daniel's dreams, you've got four beasts. The last beast is the Roman kingdom from which the Antichrist comes. And we see Rome is uh, certainly, scripturally, you can't get around it that that's part of end time problems. Here's the other thing that I find interesting. Look what he's saying here. Eusebius in the 4th century is saying, nor do Christians of the present day do such things. Notice that he's making a separation. Jews, Christians. Remember Ignatius of Antioch? Do you remember I said that they were first called Christians in Antioch? That was talking about Jews being called Christians. The church in the book of Acts was a Jewish Christian church. That's what the Bible says. But the church fathers made a separation to make it Christians and terrible people, these Jews. Right? So um, now the term Jew is one who rejects, you know, the Messiah ultimately. The term Christian seems to be one who rejects Torah. Both are wrong. Okay, moving on here, uh, prior to the 4th century a little bit here, uh, Christians were terribly persecuted under uh, a number of emperors and whatnot uh, until Constantine came in the 300s. And in 313, we see, uh, and I slaughter these names because I don't really know how they're supposed to be pronounced, but uh, Lactantius, um, he was an advisor to Constantine. Uh, prolific Christian author as well, and he records what happened at Milan when Constantine met for a special meeting where they had this, uh, um, I can't think of what it's called, but uh, like a Nicene Creed, they, they, this was a huge meeting, just like at Nicene here at Milan. Anyway, it says, while he, Lysensis, or whatever that is, and Constantine were consuls for the third time, he commanded the following edict for the restoration of the church, directed to the president of the province to be promulga promulgated. Um, basically, you'll get more here as we continue. Um, he says, when he, Constantine and Lysenius, emperors, had an interview at Milan and conferred together with respect to the good and security of the commonwealth, it seemed to us that among those things that are profitable to mankind in general, the reverence paid to the divinity merited our first and chief attention. And it was proper that the Christians and all others would have liberty to follow that mode of religion which to each of them appeared best. Christian liberty, Christian uh, freedom of religion so that the God who is seated in heaven might be benign and propitious to us and to everyone under our government. So in other words, the edict, that was the word I was looking for before, the edict of Milan was to bring freedom to Christians, but it wasn't only for Christianity. It was supposed to be for all beliefs. A lot of people kind of put it as Constantine was this big Christian guy and it was for everybody, just Christian, Christian, everything. No, even the edict here at Milan was very economical. 
It was open for all religions, which is why we see Constantine's coins, as we said before, Sol Invictus Mithras, the unconquerable sun god, Mithras. He goes on, therefore we judged it a salutary measure and one highly consonant to right reason that no man should be denied leave of attaching himself to the rights of the Christians or to whatever other religion his mind directed him, that thus the supreme divinity to whose worship we freely devote ourselves might continue to vouchsafe his favor and benevolence or beneficence to us. So again, whatever religion you have, it's fine. But that allows you to worship God, too, the true God. It goes on, For it befits the well-ordered state and the tranquility of our times that each individual be allowed, according to his own choice, to worship the divinity, and we mean not to derogate aught from the honor due to any religion. What, what I'm trying to point out is that many people see Constantine as this great Christian warrior. That's what's the, the picture that's painted within the church. And what I want you to see is that's not necessarily the case. I'm not saying he didn't do good things for the church in a lot of ways. But to say that he was just fighting for Christianity by itself is just not true. What is true is that he allowed churches to organize and form doctrines and councils and come together. That's what's important here. All kinds of doctrines and councils and whatnot. Today, many churches are, are big on the Nicene Creed, okay, which there were a lot of people who did not go to the Nicene Council because it had a lot more in there than what's in the Nicene Creed. And bottom line is that's where we see that Passover was changed. And you're going to see that later on. So when he opened up the door for all of these religions, this is why then we have all of these different councils that took place during the time of Constantine after the Edict of Milan because it gave an open door for all kinds of ideas and Gnostic, even Gnostic and pagan ideas to come about. And these councils were instrumental in the forming of Christian churches today. And these councils are going to help you understand why we believe what we do today. A few years back, we were kind of involved in the beginnings of a church and they kept going to not the council of Nicaea um, I can't even remember which one it is now but bottom line more of a Calvinistic approach everything went back to those councils everything was going back to those councils growing up in the Lutheran church it was always going back to the council of Nicaea and I remember telling them None of these go back far enough. The ones that they were, I think, was like in the 500s or something, 600s maybe. And I say, none of them, because by 300, you have to realize the church was corrupt. It was the beginning of Catholicism. And it was not pure. And so if we're going to take all of our ideas and go back to 300 or 500 or 700 or 1500, which is where a lot of them come today, you know, Martin Luther or John Wesley or all of these kind of, Calvin. If you're going to take it to there, you've got 1,500 years of screwing up to fix. I say, why don't you go back to the beginning of Scripture 
rather than what church fathers are saying. Today I get in trouble by people wondering, why are you quoting the book of Enoch? Well, why are you quoting Martin Luther? Why are you quoting John Calvin? Or John Wesley? Or John Piper? Or, John Piper, <laughs> or Brian Young? Or anybody? You see, man's authority doesn't matter. What matters is what Scripture says. Now, man, myself included, we can only interpret what God's Word says, which is why we have to do our due diligence to go to those Scriptures and make sure that it's saying what, it, what the man is saying it's saying. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. So let me show you the Council of Nicaea here under Constantine, 325 A.D. Let me show you here. Constantine explains in part what was discussed. He says... At this meeting, the question concerning the most holy day of Easter was discussed. We talked about Easter earlier, Ishtar. It was resolved by the united judgment of all present that this feast ought to be kept by all in every place on one and the same day. Now, basically, I want you to understand historically from 318-ish to about 500 AD, we had leaders from all over the world coming, and their primary focus was to deal with a, 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 what was called Arianism. Arianism was one of these ideas that was not good, and as a result, they're all coming together knowing how to deal with this. Well, some of the things they, they came up with were just not biblical at all, and it gave an opportunity for Satan to put some leaven in there in their rulings to address a bad issue. Maybe a good motive, but some leaven got in there. Um, anyway, notice he's not talking about Passover here. He's talking about Easter. He goes on, For what can be more becoming or honorable to us than that this feast from which we date our hopes of immortality should be observed unfailingly by all alike, according to one ascertained order and arrangement? And first of all, it appeared an unworthy thing that in the celebration of this most holy feast we should follow the practice of the Jews, who have impiously defiled their hands with enormous sin and are therefore deservedly afflicted with blindness of soul. In other words, they deserve not having the gospel, deserve not being able to see Jesus. For we have it in our power if we abandon their custom... Again, saying that Passover is a Jewish thing, not a biblical thing, to prolong the due observance of this ordinance to future ages. We have the power to make it stop. We have the power so that nobody does Passover ever again and be like these awful, erroneous Jews. Let's do Easter instead. They knew it was pagan, but so that they didn't have to look Jewish they're putting Easter in place of Passover. Again, the common denominator is to separate Jew and Gentile. Guys, we have all sinned. It's not just the Jew. We're all erroneous sinners. But somehow they, they put themselves above. Remember how Romans says, don't boast over the branches. That's exactly what they were doing. So... He says, it's in our power to abandon Passover and make it Easter. He goes on, which we have preserved from the very day of passion until the present time. Let us then have nothing in common with the detestable Jewish crowd, for we have received from our Savior a different way. This is the word of the dragon, Satan. 
they chose to separate from God's commands because you go read the Bible, Passover is commanded. We talked about it before, Zechariah 14 and others, we see it's going to be celebrated in heaven or in the, at least the, the millennial reign type thing, right? And yet he's saying that this is a Jewish thing and Jesus gave us a different way. Well, I think Jesus gave us the Bible's way. This is just not right. He continues, You should consider not only that the number of churches in these provinces make a majority, but also that it is right to demand what our reason approves, and that we should have nothing in common with the Jews. Again, not what Scripture says, but what our reason approves. What we come up with. Yeah, regardless, that's why I say to me, it makes no difference what the origins of, uh, of Easter or Christmas is. Makes no difference. If it's pagan or not, does not matter. What matters is what God's word says, and we should follow what his word says, not what man has instituted, not man's traditions. That is the very definition of a Pharisee. He says, to sum up in few words, by the unanimous judgment of all, it has been decided that the most holy festivals of Easter should be everywhere celebrated on one and the same day, and it is not seeming, seemingly that it, in so holy a thing there should be any division. In other words, Resistance to Ishtar is futile. <laughs> okay. The Council of Laodicea in the late 300s. Let me just show you some of the canons here uh, to start wrapping down here. It's not lawful. This is canon 37. It is not lawful to receive portions sent from the feast of Jews or heretics, nor to feast together with them. Separation. Canon 38. It is not lawful to receive unleavened bread from the Jews, nor to be partakers of their impiety. Canon 29, Christians must not Judaize by resting on the Sabbath, but must work on that day, rather honoring the Lord's day, and if they can, resting then as Christians. But if any shall be found to be Judaizers, let them be anathema from Christ. Damned to hell for keeping the Sabbath. There are 60 canons that were established at this council. And I'm just going to kind of show you three of them. But when people say there's no evidence that Christians celebrated the feasts, why then are they making these laws against things that nobody's doing? What I want you to see is there's something about the Sabbath that it seems like the devil is intent about corrupting. Like I said, any Antichrist picture in the past, they go after it. Something is there that God has established that there's a blessing in and the devil does not want you to benefit from it. I want to show you the convert's catechism of the Catholic doctrine. Okay, This is going to show you the impactful uh, place that the Laodicean Council has for our modern day. Um, they're going to admit when the Sabbath is. Okay, because Christians say that, you know, it changed. You know, right when Jesus rose from the dead. That's not true. Question, what day is the Sabbath day? Answer, Saturday is the Sabbath day. Okay, they admit that. Why then do we observe Sunday instead of Saturday? Answer, because the Catholic Church with the Council of Laodicea transferred the solemnity from Saturday to Sunday. This is the official doctrine of the Catholic Church. The doctrinal catechism here as well. 
from the Catholic Church. It says this, question, have you any other way of proving that the church has power to institute festivals of precept, of law? Answer, had she, the church, not such power, she could not have done that in which all modern religionists agree with her. She could not have substituted the observance of Sunday, the first day of the week, for the observance of Saturday, the seventh day, a change for which there is no scriptural authority. And it gets worse. Question. How prove you that the Catholic Church has the power to command feasts and holy days? Answer. By the very act of changing the Sabbath into Sunday, which Protestants allow of, and therefore they fondly contradict themselves by keeping Sunday strictly and breaking most other feasts commanded by the same church. Basically here, the Catholic Church is saying, we understand why you went away from the Sabbath, but why are you still following the practices we instituted? Okay? They, they contradict themselves by keeping Sunday. How, about, how prove you that? Because by keeping Sunday, they acknowledge the church's power to ordain feasts and to command them under sin. And by not keeping the rest of the feast days by her command, they again deny in fact, the same power. Okay, guys, if you don't know church history, no wonder. But when you know church history, and you're going to blame me because I want to keep a Saturday Sabbath? I'm not the ignorant one here. Okay, it continues. Plain talk, and we'll end on this one, about Protestantism of today. Okay, this is again uh, a Catholic thing here. Basically going to say we pay homage to Catholicism because you worship on Sunday. Now I find this very significant because again what we're talking about in Daniel, you've got four beasts. The last beast is Rome. Many people in the church believe that the Antichrist will come out of Rome in some way. Rome meaning the Catholic or the papacy. And in other words, you're going to be giving worship to that church or the papacy. It says this, it was the Catholic Church which by the authority of Jesus Christ has transferred this rest to Sunday in remembrance of the resurrection of our Lord. Thus the observance of Sunday by the Protestants is a homage they pay in spite of themselves to the authority of the Catholic Church. I could give you so much more showing you in, in even modern, and I will probably later, in modern Catholic uh, catechisms that says that when Christians go to church on Sunday, they are giving honor to the Catholic Church and they don't realize it, that they're paying homage to the Catholic Church. This is why Seventh-day Adventists believe that Sunday worship is the mark of the beast. I do not believe that. I do not believe that is the mark of the beast. However, I do believe they're on to something. If you, there is a, a YouTube video you should go watch from Babylon to America on Amazon Prime if it's not YouTube or whatever. Uh, from Babylon to America, go watch it. Now, like I said, I do not, I'm going to say that again, I do not believe that Sunday worship is the mark of the beast. Again, I, I disagree with doctrines of the Seventh-day Adventist. 
So don't say that's what I am. But I'm not. But what I am saying is that some of the things that they have are good. One of the devil's best ways to get people not to listen to something is assign it to a cult. Okay, Ellen G. White. Yeah, it, because bottom line is, you look at Mormons. Okay, that's a cult. That's not a Christian church. But bottom line, they have some wonderful practices when it comes to family and 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 evangelism. They put Christians to shame. So I know that sometimes when we would go door-to-door -door evangelism, it's almost like the first thing that I had to say, we're not Mormons, we're not Jehovah Witnesses, right? It's almost like it put a shame to be able to go and witness because you, you, you feel like it's, you know, bad. Well, I think the same is true with some of these things that Jehovah Witnesses do uh, or that Seventh-day Adventists do, that they have some good practices. So... Um, but I think that they're right when it comes to Saturday being the Sabbath. I don't think. I know they're right. They're standing on Scripture, and you go watch and do some study on Seventh-day Adventist stuff about the Sabbath. You'll see, biblically, they can back this. They can back it historically. I just don't think that you can back that that's the mark of the beast. To say so would mean my grandma, my great-grandma, all these people who love Jesus Christ with their whole heart, mind, and soul are in hell. Because you cannot take the mark of the beast and uh, get to heaven. Okay? It, it is not the mark of the beast. But to say that it's connected with the beast, Sunday worship, may not be far from the truth. If we understand Revelation and Daniel. I don't know how. I'm not, not saying that. I'm just saying it may not be far from the truth. That deserves study. And we haven't even scratched the surface yet on this, guys. I mean, I'm, I'm telling you, if you... Here's the problem. The church doesn't care. The church doesn't care enough to study and learn. They would rather just say, oh, that's, you're weird and you're being legalistic and call it good. They don't want to take the time to study and change because it's uncomfortable. Again... Is this a salvation issue? What day you worship the Lord? I don't think so. Okay? But I do think, as I'm saying, truth matters. And it's important that we don't ignore truth. When we add everything up, the two things that I want you to see is, yes, it is a, it's not biblical, Sunday word, uh, the, being the Sabbath, it is not biblical to say that there's a separate thing for the Jew and the Gentile, which we've talked about here tonight. And it's not biblical for man to take the power over God's word and to change it. And that is what we have. And it is no different for the holidays. It's the same reason. And that's why I say this is important because you need to understand why the church does what it does today. Not just the fact that it's wrong, but why? And the more you study this, the more you're going to see, wow, we have gotten far off. And it isn't just about the Sabbath. It isn't just about the holidays. It is so much more. It's, it's the authority of God's word. That's a good point, too. Very good point. Yeah, that's, 
That is a great point because how easy it is for them to lead the masses when the masses aren't educated. And that's what's happening exactly today. We have the benefit of being able to read, but we're too busy on Facebook and Netflix. And when you are uneducated, that's a great explanation of why truth matters. If you don't know the truth, you will be led astray. Don't think the devil isn't going to take that opportunity. I just want to put this word of caution out there one more time here, as I did last week, that the, the danger of knowing the truth sometimes is that we can feel overzealous and that we can feel as if we know the truth and somebody else doesn't. And we can come across judgmental. We can be judgmental, not just come across, but can be that way. We can um, do more harm than good with that as well. We can also put legalism in our lives. And I just want to caution you that this is why a lot of pastors don't talk about these things. Because they see, people see the truth, they want to follow the truth, they get legalistic about it, and it then becomes its own thing and the church splits and, and it's all over. And I don't want to see that happen. I, especially I don't want to see this group becoming known as some cult because we're talking about truth. You know what I'm saying is it's easy to become legalistic because, as I said last week, that when we talk about the Sabbath, there was a time when I would do it, and it's like, oh, I missed the Sabbath, and I'd beat myself up and feel guilty. There is no condemnation. Yes, thank you, Jesus. And I needed to, I had to work that through in my own life. But there also is no blessing if you ignore it. And so I got to the point, as I said last week, that when I would miss the Sabbath, it's like, oh, darn it, I missed my blessing. I don't beat myself up. You see, I want to follow Christ, and I want to follow his, his commandments and obey them. I don't have to to get into heaven. Thank God for that, literally, because otherwise I'm going to hell. Because it's far beyond the Sabbath that I break the commandments of God. But, as Paul said, the good that I want to do, I do not do, and that which I hate, I keep on doing. Who can rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Christ Jesus, my Lord. And so, I rest in that. But as long as I have breath, I am going to try with my best to follow the commandments of God and praise Him for every time I fail. That's... You just I, I got to remind you, and you're going to get sick of me reminding you about that. But I, I just don't want to see that true legalism creep in. Instead, I want to see people just being blessed because they're following and chasing after God.